God, that nothing that is happening in our lives escape your notice. God, you even have numbered the very hairs on our head. You count and capture every tear that has fallen from our cheeks. God, I thank you that our very names are engrafted upon the palms of your hands. God, you are mindful of us. And so, God, we just want to pause. We want to allow the Spirit of God to arrest any distraction. Father, we're praying that we would not simply be in the building because it's another routine experience of having church. God, our desire is to encounter you. We, we, we are voluntarily opening up the door that you are knocking on that you might commune with us. God, we need a touch. Father, I pray that there would be a desperation in our spirit that we would be like the woman who had the issue of blood. She was not going to go away without receiving her healing. And so, God, we're not leaving this place without our healing. God, we're not leaving this place without direction from you. God, we have come like deers panting for water. We are desperate for you. Release in us, oh God, anything that would hinder you you from being heard in our lives. God, right now, I pray that you would give us eyes that see, a heart that feels what breaks your heart. God, I pray that you would begin to move in new ways today, oh God, that we would not leave this place the same way we came. God, strip us if we need stripping. Humble us, oh God. I pray that a spirit of rejoicing and praise would break forth in, in the midst of your people, oh God, for we are in your presence, oh God. We are in the very face of God because you said we could come boldly unto the throne of grace. God, we are entering into that very place through prayer. And so, God, we are lifting up our voices before you that you might be honored. God, we're presenting our bodies as living sacrifices afresh. Accept our offering, oh God. Be pleased. Be pleased with our praise. We ask this in the mighty name of Jesus. And the church said amen. Amen, 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 amen. Mm. What is that, John Trey? He's just playing. Amen. Sounds good. Amen, amen. Praise the Lord. Praise God. Will you be the one? If you have ever had the opportunity to attend a court hearing where there's a judge and a jury of 12, maybe you've noticed, as I have, something that I find very, very peculiar. After the prosecution has presented their case against the defendant and the, and the defensive attorneys or the defense attorneys have stated their case on behalf of the defendant, the judge will instruct the jury to go to a designated place that has been assigned for them to make their decision based on the instructions that the judge reads to the jury so that they will come to a conclusion as to the guilt or the innocence of the person who has been accused of a particular crime. Now, after the jury has made their decision and it's unanimous, the bailiff will inform the judge that the jury has finalized their decision. 
And then the judge will call all the parties back into the court to resume the hearing. Now, ultimately, it is the judge, once the determination as to guilt or innocence is made, the judge is the one who gets to determine the severity of the penalty. So now they're back in the courtroom, all parties involved, and the judge will ask the jury, have you reached your verdict? And the spokesperson for the jurors will say, yes, we have, Your Honor. Then the judge will say to the defendant, please rise to hear the verdict of your peers. And if the jury says, we find the defendant guilty as charged, the judge will say, the defendant will be reprimanded or remanded to the custody of the state and the police will come and handcuff that person and carry them out of the courtroom. Now, here's where it gets crazy for me. The trial isn't over. The person has been found guilty as charged. But then there's the penalty phase of the, of the, of the uh, court proceeding that our judicial system allows. So the judge will set a date for the penalty uh, uh, session, and normally before the judge makes his decision, he will read information about specific degrees of sentencing for a particular crime. So there, 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 there are, uh, depending upon the nature of the crime, the judge will be given a, 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 a time frame for the minimum amount of time a person will serve for committing a crime like this may be 15 years. And the maximum for that same crime could be as much as 25. So there's a range of time that the judge can finally decide as to how long the person will spend in jail. Now, what's interesting about that is before the judge makes his decision as to the length of time, there won't be a weather report, but the judge will allow for character witnesses for a person who's already been found guilty. That's strange to me. You're already guilty. Who's going to speak on your behalf since you already? Well, the purpose for character witnesses is to appeal to the judge on behalf of the guilty party to intercede on their behalf so that the judge will show mercy, that the judge will give leniency. Instead of 25 years, the judge could give 15 years. If the character witnesses are persuasive enough in their intercession, that is speaking on behalf of the person who was already guilty. Now, can you imagine if that's you or me standing before the judge and we've been found, of course we weren't guilty, but we've been found guilty. <laughs> and the judge is about to make his decree about how much time we will be in jail or, or, or how severe the, the punishment will be, and there's not a single witness. The absence of the character witness should, would automatically guarantee you that you're going to get the maximum sentence allowed because there was no one available or willing to intercede on your behalf. When we come to Ezekiel chapter 22, the nation of Israel, the two southern tribes in particular, the tribe of Judah and Benjamin, have already been taken into Babylonian captivity. Nebuchadnezzar has swooped in and taken the choices of Israel's uh, young and the, 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 uh, the elites of the society, including Daniel and, and his friends, and, and Ezekiel is a part of that group, and they're taken into captivity. And so what God allows Ezekiel to do is to review the charges 
that God had against Israel that resulted in their being taken into captivity. It wasn't because Babylon was so mighty and powerful. God's charge against the southern tribes of Israel was bloodshed and idolatry. And because of bloodshed and idolatry, what God demonstrates, even though he has already judged them and found them guilty, he tells us in verse 30, he said, I didn't want to destroy them. I went around looking for character witnesses that could intercede on behalf of the nation, and I found none. Will you, will you be the one? Will you be willing, as we look at this passage today, I want you to know that God is still seeking for intercessors. God is still looking for Christians who understand that when we are on our knees, we stand tallest. God is looking for Christians who understand that the, one of the greatest weapon of our warfare between the, the sword of the Spirit is prayer, because prayer can do anything that God can do. The Bible says that the, if, you, if you have faith, you can speak, you can pray, and, and, and a mountain will move if you have the faith the size of a mustard seed, but it will not move until you pray. Prayer can do whatever God can do. Will you be the one? Turn to somebody and say, will you be the one? Amen. I still got to get used to uh, Deacon Tim. He, he stands out. Praise God. I love you. Amen. He's going to be praying a little bit on, that, on our morning call. Can't wait. Amen. Amen. The first thing I want you to notice is that God sought for one person to bridge the gap between him and his people because of sin. There was a, there was a chasm. There was a, there, was a, there was a breach. There was a divide between God and his people, and it was caused by sin. It's like that bridge that was, that was blown up on I-95 North near Cotman Boulevard. Once the bridge was gone, you couldn't cross over. Somebody had to bridge the gap. Something had to happen. And so God said, I'll take this responsibility. I'm going to take the, the responsibility of finding someone. It's interesting to note that who does the searching gives us an indication of how significant that which is lost is. The greater the significance of what is lost will determine what type of resources are dedicated to finding that person. When, when uh, Robert Kennedy's son went down outside of Martha, uh, uh, Martha's Vineyard in his plane, uh, I think that's where the plane crashed and they couldn't find it. Millions of dollars were devoted to trying to find him. And it, uh, over a week went by, and there was no evidence of Robert Kennedy and his wife, Robert Kennedy Jr. Why would they put so much money and effort and resources? It was Robert Kennedy. So the mo more important the item or the person is, it will determine who actually is involved in finding that which was lost. Guess who did the search? The Bible says in, in verse 30, it says, uh, in, verse, in verse 30, the scripture says, so I sought for man among them. God said, yes, my people have broken my heart. Yes, you have disappointed me. Yes, you didn't keep your word. Yes, you let me down, but you're so significant to me. I'm not leaving the responsibility of finding someone to stand in the gap to anyone else. I got this job. I'm not giving it to the angels, to the prophets, to the priests. I'm not going to turn it over to the FBI. I got this because of the significance of God's love for us. He himself made the commitment 
to finding us. Some of us are familiar with the Amber Alert. Uh, in 1996, a young girl was kidnapped and brutally murdered named Amber in Texas. And as a result of the fact that she was so close and steps that could have saved her life were missed, they decided to institute and create a way of informing people as soon as they found, find out that a child has been abducted, there's, there's an alarm that comes on our phone. Anybody ever experienced that? You get an a lamb, a amber alert on your phone. Uh, <clears throat> as you're driving, the Department of Transportation, there's flashing lights on signs informing us that a child has been abducted and a picture will be there. The news will give us information. Uh, you'll get uh, different other ways of trying to find out. The police get involved, the FBI involved. Every resource that is available to find the child that has been abducted is accessed and activated when a child is taken into or, or is kidnapped. But as technologically as that effort is, and all of the people as well intended as the FBI and the police and uh, alarms are on our phone, more often than not, they don't find the child until it's too late. Now, I'm not trying to discourage anybody about, yeah, we're going we to do our best, we're going to start looking, and hopefully the child is found. But I'm just simply saying that the greatest resources that we have on a human level are limited. But when God said, I got this, he's going to find his man. God's going to get to the bottom of it. Nothing is going to escape because God, who is our mission, is going to search until every detail is revealed. God said, I got this. I'm going to lead this investigation. It's really interesting. The Hebrew word that is used is dorash, not doordash, but dorash. D-A-R-A-S-H, dorash. And it means to do a thorough and complete investigation and to conclude after every single detail has been researched and every piece of information that could lead to the correct conclusion has been considered. So God, when the scripture says that I saw it, I searched, God said, I did a complete and thorough investigation. No stone was left unturned. Every detail that should have been considered, I did. And because it was me, the outcome will always be accurate, will always be true, it will always be totally reliable. No one will be able to say, when I say you're guilty, that I was unfair or the information is unfounded or unfactual. You know, sometimes the law of justice will work. If you got money, you're not going to jail. Some people need to be in jail a long time ago. But because they got money, they got a dream team. But God says, no, 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 no. When, when, when I draw the conclusions about my findings, no one will be able to question them. And, and the interesting thing about this verb, derash, it is in the past tense. So what Ezekiel is saying to the captives in Babylon is this is what, this is, if you want to understand why you are in the predicament you're in, you're not just having a bad day. This ain't bad luck. This ain't, I got off on the wrong bus. No, this is divine judgment. And sometimes when we, when we go through our day of the rush and the hairiness of it, we don't understand that the Bible says that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. The divine anger and righteous indignation of God is like a cloud that is hovering over us. We're not escaping God's notice. Divine judgment is already activated. And when we get, when we finally, our eyes are finally open and God begins to tell us how we got to where we are, then we will recognize this is God. God did this because of, and so what God says he went searching for, 
It's already passed since. He already did the investigation. I'm just telling you the conclusions now that you're experiencing. You, you, you in jail. You lost your job. You, you're not healthy anymore. I told you cigarettes aren't good for your health. I told you to take your backside to bed. I told you not to have un, uh, uh, unwedded. I told you. So here are the consequences. When my, one of my best friends, he, I was talking with him, and he telling me that he was diagnosed with stage four lung cancer. He said three years ago, he visited his primary uh, doctor, and the doctor had an x-ray, and he said, after the x-ray was looked at, the doctor said, you have a spot on your lung. He said, but don't worry about it, because we will, uh, we will watch it over the next years, and we don't have any reason to believe that it's anything to be concerned about. He went back three years later, a different doctor, same test. This time, the doctor says you have stage four cancer. Now... Same instruments, same medical professionals, but different conclusions. The reason why the conclusion is different because man doesn't always get it right. But when it comes to what God expects from us and what God tells us to do, he always gets it right. He can always be trusted. And so what God did, he said, I've given the nation of Israel a supernatural MRI. And I'm going to give you specific details as far as what my findings are to show you why you are in captivity right now. Some of us wish we had listened to the Lord before we made some of our financial decisions. Why are we in bondage right now? We can look back and see if, if I had simply listened to the Lord. If I had simply known what I don't know now, what I, what I do know now. And so God said, I got you. I got you. I got you in the sense that I'm going to tell you that it's me that is behind the consequences that you're experiencing right now. Isn't it interesting how there are things, I think about the, there's a man in Matthew's, in, Mar, in Mark chapter 3. The Bible says he came into the synagogue and he had a withered hand, a hand that was deformed, a hand that was smaller than his the, he had two the, the, the second hand, and so it stood out. Now, the last thing that this man wanted to be noticed or put on, on blast was his hand. He didn't come to church trying to conceal. We didn't want nobody to know. He wanted to be just like everybody else, but the scripture says that Jesus took notice. You may not have a withered hand. You may not be obviously trying to hide something, but we all have things that we conceal that we, we don't want other people to know what our insecurities are. We don't want people to know what our vulnerabilities are. We don't want people to know what makes us afraid. We don't want people to know that we cussed somebody out before we got to church. We don't want people to know where we were before we came to church. There's things that we conceal, but there's nothing that is hidden from the Lord. He saw the man's withered hand. He saw the man's pain. He saw what humiliated him. He saw what was embarrassing and he wanted to hide. God sees what embarrasses us. He sees what humiliates us. He sees what we try to hide. But not only does he see it and thoroughly investigates it and come to the right conclusion, the God that we serve is able to heal you. He told the man with the withered hand, he said, stretch out your hand. And he restored the hand. And the Lord today, as we're going through and answering the question, will you be the one? Whatever you're concealing, stretch it out before God. There is nothing that is hidden from him. Night and day are the same to him. David said, if I ascend into the heavens and you're there, if I make my bed up in hell, you're there. There's nowhere where I can go that I'm hidden from you. So don't try to conceal what God wants to heal. What is it in your life that God wants to heal? I make fun of myself all the time. I can laugh at myself. I'm going to make a mistake or two, maybe three. But what are you hiding? What are you concealing? God wants to heal it. 
And he wants to heal it in such a way that he that that the, that you have to give him a testimony. He healed the man in the in the synagogue. Everybody saw it. Even the haters saw because the, the religious leaders were saying, "I want to. He better not heal him on the Sabbath. He better not break up our service. He, we got to order some service here. We got a way we do stuff in this church. He better not act like he's not going to follow the rules." And the Jesus Jesus said, "Which one is it? Is it good to heal or not to heal on the Sabbath?" I'm, a, I'm so glad Jesus is a rule breaker, especially when the rules don't agree with the word. I, I, I'm so glad that the Lord is more concerned about our human need than man-made traditions. Aren't you glad about that? Aren't you glad about that? I'm looking for the time when we come to church and you, you, you I'm, I, I'm always expecting God to do something that we don't expect because that's the kind of God we serve. I work on the passage and et cetera, but God takes control if I get out of the way. And that's the same way we ought to approach church. I'm coming with all of my hurt. I'm coming with all of my, my, my questions and my doubts, but I'm coming and I'm going to be clean with God. And, and what God will do, he'll meet you right where you are. And he'll heal. He'll heal what's hurting you. If you stop concealing it and it becomes your, 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 what terrified you becomes your testimony. Now, why would God search for something he already knows? Where's that? I was uh, asking my wife, I said, I got mad about it, too. I'm trying to find my long cord for my phone. And I said, all of a sudden, I got the little cord. She said, you think you put it? I said, if I knew where I put it, I wouldn't be. <laughs> yeah, that's my ask you. Do you think you put it? I didn't. <laughs> no, I didn't. She's listening, but I love you, honey. <laughs> if I knew where it was. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, God. <laughs> but God knows where everything is. But he said, I direct. I looked. I saw it. I searched. Why would God be searching? God, you ask. He searches to show us ourselves. To show us ourselves. David said in Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24, he said, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. David was not, God already knew David's heart. What David was actually asking God is, show me me. Show me me. So God will search us to show us the x-ray. You know, you get the MRI, then the doctor throw it up on the wall. The x-ray, the MRI already knows what it saw. But you don't know until you see it. And so God will search. He'll do the MR, spirit supernatural MRI, so he can show us our anxious thoughts. He also does it to show us himself as a just and righteous God. When you get a chance in Revelation chapter 20, verses 15 through 18, 15, uh, 12 through 15, this is powerful. I should read it, but we, we just, for time's sake. The Bible says, and the books were opened. This is the great white throne judgment. And, and, and all who have died throughout history not knowing Christ, they're standing before the judgment seat of Christ. And the Bible says two books are open, the book of works and the book of life. And the Bible says that God examines to see if the person's works would justify them being in heaven. Then he opens up the book of life, that is, where your name is written because you are saved and sovereignly chosen by God to, to, to see if your name. Now, the question is, why would God need to be? God don't need no books. What God need with some books? He's omniscient. He knows everything. But he has, what's the book for? He's to show us, our, to show us himself that he's fair and he's righteous. That is, none of us, when we stand before God to be judged, 
will be able to say God wasn't. She said, whoa, whoa, okay, maybe I'm, God might say, okay, maybe I missed something. Let's look over here in this book. So God's going to take two books to show us both times that he's right and we wrong. So the two books are God's way of saying to us, I want you to know that there's no partiality when, when I judge. The Bible says, in hell, after the person's name is not recorded in the book of works or in or life, hell and the individuals rejecting Christ will be cast into the lake of fire. That is the second death where they will burn forever. And so God is showing us himself. The two books are for us to show us that God is fair. God is just. He's always accurate in his conclusions. He never makes miscalculates. Somebody say amen. amen. He's showing us. Look, there's two books here. Well, look, look, look. I say it's not there, but let's look. No, no, no. It's not there either. But I didn't need a book. Let, let, let's do it on. So he shows us ourselves, he shows us himself, but he also stirs up or stirs us up to action to prevent judgment. Proverbs says that the eyes of the Lord are everywhere, say everywhere, Everywhere. keeping watch on the wicked and the good. God searches when he already knows, you know, you play hide and seek with your kids. And they always hide in the same place. <laughs> it's like, all right, I'm counting the, counting the 10. And you get the 10. And then you go looking for them. And you look downstairs. You look in the back. You look all over. And they just laugh. And they can't find me. I know where you are. You go to the same place. <laughs> so God is giving us a chance to get it right. He gives us a chance to get it right. Somebody say, I mean, aren't you glad that God gives us? He's trying to stir us up. You didn't, let me not jump ahead. We're moving on. But he gives us a chance to to, to to respond to the conviction. When you know Jesus, the Bible says the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to convict us. Guilt is not bad. Shame is not wrong. If it moves you away from sin, yes, I said the three-letter word, sin. (laughs) Anything that is contrary to the word of God, it is sin. It's not a mistake. It's not a misremembrance. It's not a misstep. It's sin. It's transgression. It's iniquity. God calls it an abomination. God's trying to stir us up. How many times have you said, I'll never do it again? Oh, it's quiet up in here. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I've said it maybe once or twice. (laughs) Let me help you out. (laughs) And God spared you and me. Aren't you glad about it? And, and we so arrogant and, 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 and obnoxious, we didn't even say thank you. We just say, oh, man, I got away with it again. God is just being, giving us, as he's stirring up in us an opportunity where we will respond to the Holy Spirit. Here's the third thing. So God is the seeker. God is also slow to anger. Say he's slow to anger. He said, I looked for someone among you, among them, who would build up a wall, stand in the gap, and stand before me in the gap on behalf of the land so that I what? I would not have to destroy it. They were guilty. But God says, even though I, they were guilty and deserved judgment, he said, I sought so that I would not. He's long-suffering, church. He's long-suffering. Underline those words, so that I would not have to destroy you. No, your name's not there, but you could put your name there. I could put my name there. Despite their guilt, 
and deserving of judgment. God did not want to bring judgment. God wants to bless us, not break us. Amen. And we're too busy. All right. And, and I name it and I claim it. But to, to, to get the, what you're claiming, first of all, it has to be lined up with the word. But the second part of it is God's not going to bless your mess or my mess. Stay, stay with me. Psalm 145, verse 8, it says, The Lord is gracious and full of compassion, slow to anger and great in mercy. Great in mercy. Now, the theological concept of slow to anger does not refer to how long God waits. It doesn't have to do with time. It has to do with how God treats us as he waits. He is compassionate and kind. While he's waiting, he's still blessing us. He's still opening up doors for us. He still lets the blood pump through our hearts. He still keeps giving us opportunities. And so he's long-suffering in the sense that as he is waiting, he's not raining on your parade. He's not destroying your life. He is compassionate and kind as he waits. You, you scratching up my car. You tearing up my stuff. You keeping my money. You, you adulterous and all that. I'd be done slapped you in the next day. I know that's the way we were raised. But God's watching all that we do and we shouldn't do in direct defiance to the word. And he still keeps on loving you. Keeps on extending his mercy. That's long suffering. He keeps being kind. What kind of God? It makes no sense that he could love us like that. That he, that he doesn't consume us. That's what we, what we really deserve. But he keeps on making a way. And the problem is we think we're getting away. No, no, no. It's God's long suffering. He is still kind. He is still compassionate. And why? Because it's his nature to be that way. That's what our God is like. He cannot go against his will. He never has a frustrating day. He never has a temper tantrum. God never goes left. He never goes off. He never points a finger. Let me tell. No. Thank God he doesn't act like us. God's delayed judgment doesn't mean he approves of our lifestyle. I love my children, but I don't agree with everything they do. My children love me, but they don't agree with everything. And I'm saying when, when we're wrong, but you, God keeps loving us. God's delayed judgment doesn't mean that we have avoided divine discipline. The Lord is slow to anger, abounding in love and forgiving sin and rebellion, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children for their sin, and sometimes the sin that we are, the consequences that we're suffering from in Numbers chapter 14, verse 18, are generational curses, stuff that our parents did. We're still suffering from it. You, 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 the stuff that you should have been exposed to because of who you were. You had no choice in who your parents were. And so if you grow, are there, there are kids who are born in houses where their parents are drug addicts, murderers, dads in jail, uh, brothers and sisters sell drugs, and then we expect them to go to school, get straight A's. And then when you do a close delve, when you dive into it, you, you, what you discover is that it's not just the child's immediate family. It was his granddad and his granddad's dad. He said, be sure that the guilt of sin will, go, will not go unpunished, even to third and fourth generation. That's why we need to get it together. That's why we need to decide, I'm going to be the one. I'm about to break this generational curse. I'm about to, to step in the middle of this thing. I'm going to be the one who will stand in the gap, and the curse will be forever removed from my family. Nobody else needs to go out like, they, like my dad did and my mother did because I'm going to stand. I'm going to stand. I'm going to stand in the gap. 
he decides. The, so God is slow to anger. God is slow to anger. When he told Noah, he said, Noah, I want you to build an ark. It's never rained. Build an ark, and I'm going to destroy the world because there's evil everywhere. Look around, y'all. Look around the world, y'all. It's evil everywhere. Judgment is just around the corner. He said, build an ark. It had never rained. And Noah, in his obedience, began to build an ark. But guess how long it took God before he destroyed the world? 120 years. Noah preached every day for 120 years the same sermon. Oh, my God, it's going to rain. And they laughed at him. They looked at him like it was stupid. It's going to rain. You said that yesterday. You said that 10 years ago. You said that 30 years ago. You said that 50 years, and it still hadn't rained. But when the rains came, why did God delay the rain? Because God is not willing that any should perish, but he is long-suffering, not willing that any of us are going to die without knowing Christ, but that all should come to him in repentance. God didn't have to have Noah build an ark. He could have just choked Noah like he did Enoch, translated him out of the world, and then sent him back. But the ark was for... For God to show long-suffering towards wicked people who had no time for God. God is also sovereign. We're moving. He said, I sought someone among them. Just one person. God said, I don't need a crowd. Just, just anyone. So he, God, who's sovereign, he said, I just want one person. But not this person can't just be anybody among them. They have to be saved. And that saved person needs to be in right relationship with me. They need to be living right. And here's what I want them to do. What I want them to do is I want them to intercede. This is what builds the, bridges the gap. This is what builds, builds the wall that stops and avoids divine judgment is that Christians are praying on behalf of the unsaved. God said, I'm looking for one intercessor, one person who's willing to go before me and cry out on behalf of that mother, on behalf of that son, on behalf of that community, on behalf of this government. Is there one person who's willing to get up early in the morning and intercede for those who don't know Jesus? Is there one person who's willing to push their plate away and fall on their face and cry out to God on behalf of this country? He said, I'm just looking for an intercessor. I don't need everybody. I just need one person to get serious. Just one. Just one. Just one intercessor. Just one. I know your list. I know your petitions. I know your confessions. But I need some intercessors. I just need one. Just one. Just one. We see this. At work in Exodus chapter 17, verses 10 through 13, Moses is on the hill. He instructs Joshua to lead the troops against the Amalekites down in the valley. And the battle is waging. And, and, and Moses is, is standing and he's got the rod of God, his shepherd's rod, and he's holding it up. And as he's praying, the, 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 the troops of Israel are victorious, but, but uh, Aaron and her, who were with Moses on the top of the hill, they recognized something. When the hands of Moses started to go down, when he stopped praying, the battle would change. <laughs> so what was happening on the hill impacted what was going on in the valley. What happens in heaven is impacted on by what's going on in earth. So what her and Aaron decided to do was to hold up. Moses' hands so he could continue to intercede. And as he interceded, the people of God were victorious over the enemy. I want you to know that when you are interceding, that what you are telling God will impact what is going on in your world, what was going on in your sphere of influence. Prayer has that kind of power. Somebody say amen. Somebody say amen. Somebody say, man, I don't know what Amalekites you're facing or what Amalekites have come against your family. 
against your vision that God has given you. But I tell you, if you have people interceding for you, God will turn your circumstances around. Let's finish with this. God shows us the sad conclusion of his search. He said, I found none. Not one person in New Direction. Not one person in the course in the nation of Israel. First, he started with the prophets in verses uh, 25 through 30 through 29. He starts with the prophets, and he said, they devour souls like ravenous wolves, the prophets. He said, and then he goes to the pastors or the priests, and the priests violated the law. They, they shut their eyes to sin. They stopped preaching about sin. And so he couldn't find one among the preachers or the pastors. He couldn't find one among the prophets. And then he went to the prince or the the politicians. And he said they were all crooks in business to stay in power. He couldn't find a single person among the politicians. And then finally, the Lord said, I searched among the people. God couldn't find a single person because the people were following their pastors. The people were following their leaders. And so God concluded that I didn't want to bring divine judgment. You want to understand why you're in Babylon, why you're in bondage, why you haven't experienced the blessings that, you, that I promised you. These are things that I promised, but I can't release because you're under divine lockup. I locked these things up to you. And let me tell you why. Bloodshed and adultery. You've turned from me. But even you, though you turned from me and I found you guilty and I was standing before you as your judge and getting ready to pronounce, I allowed you an opportunity to, to have character witnesses. But I went to the priests and the prophets and the politicians and the people. I could not find one witness. Will you be the one? Will you be the one? Stand with me. He said, I couldn't find one. I couldn't find one. That's a sad commentary when Christians won't pray. It's a sad commentary when we don't know how to intercede on behalf of others. It's a sad commentary when what breaks the heart of God doesn't break our heart. It's a sad commentary when we don't take God's word serious. He said, if my people who are called by my name would humble themselves and pray, he said, I would hear, I will heal their, I will and confess their sins. He said, I will hear from heaven and I'll heal their land. I'll heal their land. Moses sent the spies out to the promised land, the land that they're fighting over right now in Israel. And 12 spies went out, 10 came back, and he said, You know what? <laughs> Everything you said, Moses, I mean, you talk about grapes the size of softballs. Flowing with milk and honey. That's not my hoop yet, bro. (laughs) Flowing with milk and honey. But we saw Nephilim. We saw giants. We We can't do this. When we looked at them and then looked at us, we looked like grasshoppers. And then when the people heard it, the Bible said they became depressed and they cried all night. God had just led them out of Egypt with 10 miraculous plagues to, 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 and led them through the Red Sea. And they talking about, we can't do it. Yeah, they didn't do it in the first place. It was always God. The Bible says that the people decided to stone Moses. They picked up bricks. They going, Pastor, we could have stayed in Egypt. This would have had some leeks and garlic. They were stoned. Then God showed up. And God said, Moses, stand back. I'm about to wipe these characters. This craziness ends today. I'm done with these belly aching Christians. And that back then, I'm done with the Moses. You just get out the way, and I'm going to give you an entire new congregation. I'm going to give you a whole new group of people. And the Bible says, Moses fell on his face. And he prayed to God on behalf of the folks who had bricks in their hand with his name on it. He reminded God. He said, God, but you are slow to anger. You are a God of compassion. Surely you can forgive them. And God said, because of your intercessory prayer, Moses, I will not destroy them. 
who should you be praying for that you see their life is heading for destruction? But they don't like me. They don't even speak to me. They give me a hard time. I, I, I wish God would. No, 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 no. That's not the spirit. The Lord was slow to anguish for us. Jeremiah said, it's because of his mercy I'm not consumed. Great is whose faithfulness? His faithfulness that I'm not consumed. They're new every morning. And so why would I be any less than loving when it comes to showing what God has already done for me? Will you be the one? Will you be the one? Are you willing to take prayer for others seriously? God is willing to stop divine judgment if the church would make up its mind to intercede. Father God, in Jesus' name, we need you. A Christian that doesn't pray is a cold-hearted Christian. Prayer is what keeps the fire, the passion, the intimacy goes away without communication. And so for those who are in this room who are searching, why am I not experiencing what I... Start with your prayer life. Just start right there. God told, Jesus told the church of Ephesus, you are doing great things, but I have this one thing against you. You have left your first love. The most important thing in any healthy relationship is communication. If we don't communicate, that is the death sentence to a relationship. And so, God, I pray right now that you would cause us to recognize the need that prayer is our lifeline. Prayer is what gives us the hope that tomorrow is going to be better than today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As our heads are bowed before the Lord,